Hello and welcome to Connected, a podcast about people, ideas, marketing, technology and everything that's good. I'm ASD, a digital man here at Mediacom. Hi, I'm Sue Uniman, Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom. And joining us today is Brian Weezer. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. It's been a long time coming, as we were saying. (laughs) Nearly in real life a year ago. Yeah, Brian was scheduled to come on in March face to face just before lockdown happened. So I'm super happy we managed to do this again. Uh, Brian is the global president of business intelligence at Group N and has been called Madison Avenue's de facto chief economist. Uh, He's a highly regarded commentator on marketing, media, advertising and technology at Group M. He leads thought leadership around economic trends, forecasts and insights. And he's a regular contributor to Group M's articles and points of view. Now, Brian, someone, I don't know if you know who it was, we don't know who it was, someone once said of you, there are few people in the world who understand the quantitative aspects of new media take-up patterns as much as Brian. Who said it, if you remember? I have no idea. What, <laughs> what does that mean, and how did you get good at this? Well, I, you know, I um, ignorance, frankly. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, you know, I started my career, uh, such as it was, uh, as an investment banker, uh, after business school and uh, you know didn't really know much about the business of media uh, I spent a lot of time during my undergraduate um, program uh, in college radio and um, understood media at a certain level but not the business level of it and so you know as a banker I was taught um, basically don't trust anything unless you see a document where if it's wrong, the provider of that data can go to jail. And so that's kind of a good start, right? Like be skeptical of any data you get unless it comes from a source where it's at that level of rigor. And from there, it's like, all right, um, I show up in agency land a few years later, um, 2003, and I actually had no idea what I'd signed up for. And, uh, you know, not dissimilar role to this one, but as I, I would hear people say things like the consumer's in control, I'd say, oh, that's interesting. How do you quantify that? W- what data are you using to confirm that? And, and tell me again, how does that differ from like 50 years ago when someone could just walk away from whatever medium they were consuming? So again, can you explain to me what this means and give me numbers that actually are, I can validate. And I kept asking those questions <laughs> and it turned out nobody had good answers. I expect you didn't make many friends. No, no, it's very <laughs> it's irritating. Like Although I, I do suggest uh, it's a great way to make enemies. Um, uh, but it's also really good to show that you're, you're thinking. It, it, when I convey this to you know people earlier in their careers, um, I do strongly suggest that people should challenge assumptions. So I think a lot of the um, a lot of uh, you know what you conveyed in that in that uh, quote really just came out of ignorance. Well, perhaps not. Perhaps ignorance. Ignorance doesn't sound quite right. Perhaps um, uh, uh, realism is the. I might. I might express that as. And and in an industry where so much um, is not unfortunately rooted in in that realism, um, or you know, science is underinvested in, shall we say? I mean, think about all of the processes we go through and all the conventions take reaching frequency right so core and fundamental to how so many brands and marketers uh manage their budgets there are not a lot of studies going on 
uh, and few brands want to actually fund whether or not reaching frequency is, in fact, the right thing. It might be, by the way. It might be way more impactful. Well, than it. there's Aaron Bergbass, but I mean, what I would say is I, I do remember at one point um, with a, a global Internet guru of some kind getting into quite a discussion because he didn't think that there was a difference between causation and correlation, which <laughs> annoyed me quite a lot. Well, Aaron Bass is a really good example. Like, there is not a lot of that. And then to point, like, even uh, some of you may, some you both may or may not have seen the recent uh, podcast uh, from uh, 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 Stephen Levy's uh, uh, economics. uh, Freakonomics. uh, Freakonomics, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. uh, On advertising where the basic conclusion from an esteemed behavioral economist is that, well, advertising doesn't work, um, or at least we don't know how well it works. The, there, were so, there were so many flaws in that analysis that they did. There were so many limitations, like they, and they ascribed uh, the studies at hand in that podcast to all advertising, when in fact it might've just been true for a certain advertiser under certain conditions. Because so there's some only, very rigorous work that goes on in the IPA effectiveness awards. Oh, and there are rigorous ones, but there's not enough of it. But 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 there are also there's also a lot of people still selling snake oil, which is a, in a way how advertising started. It's it's interesting your point about how we lack, but we lack this information and we lack this insight, despite the humongous growth of data. It's it's almost ironic well, in that way. Yeah, and and that's another. And whole we know why. Yeah, we know why. Well, and sometimes it's the wrong data that we focus on or we and, and this is a funny thing when I think about like uh, uh, the power of the platforms that um, is often pointed to. Um, I'm often reminded of a, of a, of a discussion uh, involving Facebook and, um, you know, the Russian involvement in uh, uh, the election of 2016, where one of the senators questioned uh, whoever it was from Facebook on the panel. So let me get this straight. You guys can process billions of data points per second but you didn't include a variable to test whether or not Russian rubles were being used to buy political advertising, right? And it's such a great encapsulation of the idea that you can have the best data and the best capacity to process it, but if you're not asking the right questions to begin with, Mm. then the data doesn't matter. And I I see that constantly through, you know, the industry and largely again, because I think notwithstanding, as soon as you pointed out, like there is great work being done, but nowhere near enough. What's interesting you right now, Brian? Uh, boy, there's so much. There is no shortage of things to explore. Um, you know, the dynamics of small and large businesses is something that I'm really interested in trying to get under the hood of. Um, you know, my, my hypothesis and certainly the data that I've seen has been that um, large businesses take share of any given economy in which um, there are large and small business uh, data points to look at. Uh, and at the same time, I was fascinated to see, you know, the UK uh, retail sales data uh, that just came out last week was pretty interesting to see how smaller businesses in retail have taken share of retail spending. That's not true for all spending, for all business activity. But I'm always interested in understanding that dynamic. Um, so that's maybe one thing that's uh, that's top of mind. Uh, e-commerce more generally, I think, is... is uh, such a high level focus for from brands and so i think it, it it's it's reasonable for me to focus on 
all aspects and attributes of e-commerce as well. How do you stay on top of the cutting edge of trends and maintain this helicopter view? Or in a way, does the helicopter view come naturally to you? But how do you decide what to, which bits to deep dive into? I'm not sure which way around to ask that question. This is always a challenge. Um, the, the, I, I'd say it starts with a vantage point of trying to understand where the money is flowing. And, um, you know, and, and that's really the, yeah. I consider myself not a student of consumer trends, right? I'm a, I'm a student of business trends. Yeah. I'm a student of how corporations act and behave and operate and allocate resources. Um, and so, you know, trying to study uh, individual companies' performances uh, tends to lead me down certain paths. Trying to look at government data sources leads me down certain paths. And um, and then obviously, you know, following the, the media owners themselves, I mean, by this point in my career, that has, that is, pretty natural like I can read something and I understand and I know far too much about whatever it is that I'm reading about I don't claim that same level of knowledge about individual marketers in most categories I'm not an expert on let's say packaged goods or financial services or whatever and so I'm constantly trying to learn more about the individual businesses so that I could call myself more than an amateur packaged goods analyst and more than an amateur, uh, you know, automotive analyst. Super interesting. So this is a very badly worded question. I wrote it, so forgive me for that. But the how important are having interests outside your work that then help you have a better and stronger point of view in your job? It is important. And I wish, I wish, I wish I spent more time on those external things I, i'm so glad and lucky that you know coming out of my undergraduate degree i was primarily focused on music and trying to become a musician huh. um one tour uh and one you know <laughs> recording published or distributed and i realized oh my god this is not a career i want uh it's too repetitive to, to do it well it's hard it's hard to keep it, it, it would not be something that would be that interesting to me. And so, um, but I was lucky in a sense that I pursued something that I was so passionate about at a time and so interested in when most people I knew coming out of my you know, undergraduate program were pursuing careers in accounting or maybe they were going on to law school or whatever. And they didn't have that, you know, they didn't take that opportunity to pursue something different. And I did. So that was a good thing. Um, as it is in terms of um, outside interests, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely have certain passions, which I, I, you know, I look to for different analogies um, to understand this industry. Uh, chocolate is one of them. <laughs> and, and so it's not, tr maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's not. Um, but I basically, I, I'm a chocoholic uh, and I, I, I have particularly focused on French chocolate and, and you know, the Paris chocolate scene. Um, and uh, and Basque country chocolate as well. This has led me to, you know, I wrote something several years ago uh, called uh, of beer, chocolate and ad tech, trying to find the, you know, the commonalities between them. They're obvious, right? <laughs> and and the, for those who don't follow the thread there, uh, the connection was uh, at the time, this was 2015 or 16, I wrote this piece um, where I noted that 
um, I was surprised to learn 20 years ago that Couverture um, came, which is, you know, blocks of chocolate came basically from, there were two manufacturers that dominated European chocolate, right? Valrona and Cabo. And, um, and then I never thought about that before, but it made all the sense in the world when you think about what goes into making the blocks of chocolate, right? Yeah. Um, here in Portland, Oregon, where I'm based, after I moved here, I, uh, I was surprised to learn that there are basically two manufacturers of yeast for any given brewer, whether you're, you know, Anheuser-Busch or your favorite microbrewery. Two manufacturers in the country. That's it. And because of the difficulty with it, it takes in manufacturing yeast, and it's like, oh, this this makes sense. And then I learned about uh, at the time uh, Ipenweb, if you know them, um, which were essentially white labeling ad tech, as uh, AppNexus was starting to do as well at the time. And uh, I could see how the, the business model of of the technology underpinning ad tech could be very similar because. In the same way that a, a Belgian chocolatier um, is not differentiating on the basis of the actual couverture, they're differentiating on the basis of their retail location uh, and the flavors that they are embedding inside of their chocolate. The same could be true in ad tech, where the real differentiation is on the business model or the customer segments or whatever. Yeah. So when I think about, to get to your question, like, Outside interests are really important and interesting because they help you reframe or think about business mm -hmm. problems. By the way, just on chocolate, because my other half is quite geeky about chocolate. Grenada and chocolate. I don't know if you've ever had chocolate from Grenada. Uh -huh. He says the Grenada and chocolate company is the best chocolate in the world. But for the last two years, they haven't been exporting it at all. So it is literally unobtainable. So I, I just think there's a there's a there's just an interesting uh, kind of thing to explore there because I don't know what happened to Grenada and their business model. No, I don't either. I and it's interesting because I um, I don't um, I wish I had more time to devote to uh, you know my chocoholism, um, yeah. but unfortunately because i'd love to be able to dig into that question and you look well on it um <laughs> seth godin talks about his chocolate how he, he goes deep into chocolate doesn't he do you know seth, seth godin the, i didn't uh, know he, i know seth godin oh, i didn't know he was deep into chocolate deep into chocolate and coffee they're his things yeah they just reminded me of that um so you you are much i think you are much appreciated much admired brian do you have an underappreciated skill that we should know about and appreciate of you. Well, you know about my chocolate thing. Uh, well, so that's music as well. Yeah, that's well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I my music has definitely been something where I just haven't spent time on it. Um, uh, I but what I definitely. What was your role in the band? Well, I, I did I, I did a little of everything. I mean, the last band I was in um, I was just playing keyboards. For, it was really someone else's band at that point. Um, but uh, my primary instrument, if you will, growing up was bass, electric bass. And uh, uh, but I was deep, deep into into it. I, sp I would spend you know three or four hours a day during high school on uh, uh, you know practicing or or transcribing um, or even trying to replicate things like uh, uh, you know a Ginger Baker drum solo, uh, programming it into a drum machine. But you see, bass playing is interesting itself. I was listening to something the other day where they were talking about the fact that 
the part of the reason that music is so irresistible as a mood swinger is that the bassist is um, reminding you, referencing of you of the heartbeat in the womb. And so it's 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 a super, you know, pre birth kind of um, relationship with sound, which is kind of interesting. The basis I know tend to be quite chill as a typology. I, interesting. I, you know, I just fell into it. Uh, I, I mean, it was ultimately what I could get taught at, at, in elementary school. And so I, I stuck with it. But and then, you know, electric guitar um, then might have been, a, a, you know, a thing I spent more time on in, in latter years. But but um, yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm nowhere near as good a player as I would have been. 20 years ago <laughs> that's probably a skill i well, guess we will appreciate that in you from now on <laughs> yeah uh brian so you're the first person to get our new and updated questions for 2021 this is a common one but we, we've but, but uh, don't, we've had don't worry fans of the show out there we haven't abandoned <laughs> yeah. all of the old no. questions uh so the first one is what is your favorite line from a poem a song or a book <sighs> yeah that's a that's a favorite today it... say doesn't mm. have to be favorite all time I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. That's a, I, I, I do tend to pick up, uh, you know, modify lines, not from songs, but from speeches and apply them to our industry. And so maybe if I could use that as an answer to this. Um, did you know that Winston Churchill was actually a media planner? Because? Yeah, it's a true story. In the interwar years, in between prime ministerships, it's little known. And so he said at some point, Television is the worst form of advertising, except for all those others which have been tried. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm terrible with lyrics, as my wife will uh, uh, remind me endlessly. Uh, I, I, I know like five words and then, you know, kind of forget. I'm, the not, rest. Sure, I'm not sure we've got an answer to the question, have we, Andrew? We're quite I don't have an answer to that. I'm sorry. Oh, there's nothing as a music. Can you give us a like, let's go let's find one. Like, what what song what song would you love to put, what would you put on that makes you think of something happy? Oh, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? You know, to get any Elvis could say, you know, Lovell Terrace part. You know, playing that a lot over the holiday break recently, over and over and over again. The Elvis Costello version for me, but yeah, but I would say, uh, you know, I mean, uh, again, my 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 memory with lyrics is never never. No, no, happened. that's a great no, line. We'll, we'll we'll live um, with what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding. And anyone out there that hasn't seen the Elvis Costello version, highly recommended. So, if you were a genie, what five commonly available objects would I have to put in a magic circle to summon you? I'm guessing chocolate is going to be one of these. Yeah, I mean, oh, actually, I'll I'll tell you, uh, brew IPAs. B-R-U-T, brew IPA. I don't know if that's ever popped up in the UK. Um, and it's it kind of disappeared here as well. It's the most amazing thing. It's an IPA, you know, an India Pale Ale beer uh, with champagne yeast. Oh, my God. It is the most amazing concept of beer ever. And it it, it kind of blew up here for a period of time and then went away. It's the driest, least sweet beer you can imagine and you never appreciate how sweet beer is until you have it this way so i wish that i could have champagne yeast okay. fueled beer again. that's one yeah um but yeah definitely then good you know chocolate and and i guess it, it really depends on do you know have, do you know about my chocolate marathon no 
So my chocolate marathon, I've done this a few times. I usually time it to, uh, you know, when I come back from, from Cannes, you know, include another an extra day in Paris for a return stopover. And, you know, start the day around with a, a two mile, four mile run, something like that. Um, and then I create a 22 mile circuit where I would walk uh, mostly in a circle. Um, and there's one, one metro ride as well, followed by another walk. But it, it, it turned into a grand total of 26 miles of walking, including that four mile run. And I'd get to about 20 different um, chocolaterie. And by the end of this process, I'd be carrying, I don't know, you know, 10 kilos of chocolate. So it's also like a good farmer carry kind of thing. Yeah. So you get the walk, you get the, care, <laughs> the, the farmer carry. And so it's a great workout. Yeah. Chocolate. And, and a great job. I'm, I'm, I'm worrying about the beer, Andrew, because that's not commonly available. Beer's commonly available. Oh, the, the actual. The, the champagne yeast. We'll get you, oh, we'll get you as close as you anymore. I've seen like one manufacturer that makes it now. It just, it was a fad, but it was so good. Oh, strictly um, speaking. But, but I mentioned the. Uh, you know, so there's like a couple of dozen of these chocolaterie I, I, I would always try to um, visit, and not all of them will ship to the United States. But we can get you good Parisian chocolate. That's, that's fine. Yeah. I oh. just don't think we can get you a product that doesn't exist anymore. No. But we can get you a, Andrew will pick you out we'll, a good we'll bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's beer and chocolate. That's two. Boy, um, I would say uh, it's funny. I was watching a Miles Davis uh, documentary yesterday, and it was reminding me that I really, really, really want to. I mean, I, I could never play bass like any of his, uh, you know, bass players did. But it was reminding me. I uh, I really, really, really want to learn how to play guitar like Django Reinhardt. So okay. some Django Reinhardt transcriptions. Okay, that's done. Three. Number four, coffee. Okay, good coffee. Yeah, I mean, and Portland is a a real mecca of uh, coffee. I mean, it's it is um, something we care deeply about, um, and a good baguette. Okay, oh. for which you have to go to France. I know. So my wife and I really want to retire to Basque Country. It, it, it's a you know, and I am a British citizen, so it's a real shame about Brexit for that purpose. <laughs> but um, right. my yeah. uh, my. Uh, that, that kind of whole observation that despite be- before Brexit, you still couldn't get a good baguette outside France. It's just it was just a quite extraordinary thing. I mean, the bit, the bit Brexit and the baguette, uh, that, that's 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 it. That, well, I have to say that it is surprising. You know, when I um I, I actually did find a great place in my last trip to London. And, and you know, any time I would go somewhere, I would try to find a good baguette. Um, there's a great place. I don't know if it's still open. Little Bread Peddler. It's okay. south of the Thames. I forget the neighborhood, but it was a good six, seven mile run from uh, High Holborn. Um, and it was well worth the run. Mm. Uh, I, just, so I, I just love the way that everyone strides around Paris in the morning, wielding their baguette for the day as if it was a mobile phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. like, is that five? Are we that five? is five. That That's is five. five. Good. Brian, can I ask you what your single best skill is? Uh, it, it's analysis. That is my superpower. What would you practice more if you have the time and the space? Uh, yeah, guitar. So I see a theme. And finally, no, penultimate question is what fictional world would you live in and why? 
what fictional world would I live in? Um, I, that yeah, that's a. These are great questions, by the way. Has anyone ever told you that? Um, I, I can I can I again punt on that and say yeah please I I, I like the world in which we live in I I think it, the the goal nope. should be to improve the one nope. we're in nope. no Brian, not, no not acceptable no no I I you know and and again I I wish I had um if I had more outside more time to do anything else I'd have read more fiction to be able mm. to say oh how about this world or that world because I okay. I definitely do make time to uh, watch, I don't know, just seeing the, the Queen's Gambit or, yeah. um, you know, you know, no shortage of, of, of those sorts of programs. But there's no one world uh, I've ever seen that I'd rather live in than the one in which I inhabit. So I'm, it's hard I'm to I'm going to give you that. five because you're avoiding the question. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Blade Runner, Alien and. Uh... Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Oh God! Those are because, because they, were very, they were very, they were very geeky. <laughs> Sorry, that's the first that comes to my head. Pride and Prejudice at least seems like it's rooted closer to reality than the others. There you go. So I think you would go well. down well in Pride yeah, and Prejudice. Okay, and now we have one final question that you cannot plan for because it is from the School of Life. Hundred questions to start a conversation. Um, so I am holding up three cards. Uh, my left, middle, my right. Which would you choose? Middle. And this says, are you good at taking criticism? Uh, I think so. My wife might disagree, but I think I am. <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I love, I have to say, I love being told I'm wrong. And, and at least in a work context, Absolutely, because but but here's the thing. I want to be told I'm wrong, and I want someone to bring the data. What's the saying? In God we trust. Everybody else better bring data. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I love criticism. I love people saying your analysis was incorrect. You missed this. You missed that. That's how I get to be a better analyst. And that's kind of the it's not the secret, but. One of the reasons I published the way I did as a, as a securities analyst, where I tried to include a lot of people from industry in my distribution list, was because I would get the feedback. I would get people telling me, hey, you didn't think about this. You didn't consider that. Even now, you know, when I publish things to an internal community, I really want people to tell me you're wrong. Mm. So I would argue, yes, I, I do accept criticism and I want criticism. Brian. But it needs to be robust. Very yeah. good. Thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic. And hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank Thanks for the questions. Brilliant. Great. Thank you. Great Cheers. Bye. 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 Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Brian. It was brilliant. I really loved that. Sorry, I've got, I've got to climb no in. But thank you. I'll we'll talk up. again.